Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's have uh, the three and five-year-olds as well as six, seven-year-olds head off to their classes. And for the rest of us, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 7. And we've got a, a big chunk today. We've got a, a, a big message here. 18 through 35. 18 through 35. Um, and for, for those who have been around the district for some time now, uh, you know I love a good John the Baptist sermon. Um, I speak of him often. Uh, I don't know if it's because of just my kind of backwoods wilderness lifestyle or what, uh, as far as where I'm from in Tennessee. But every time I speak about John the Baptist, uh, I feel at home. So it's, uh, it's just good for me. I, I know there are even, I think, some side bets out there as to how many times I mention him being the greatest of all time or him also uh, getting his head caught off because of a stripper. And so... Um, Regardless, that's one-to-one right now for those that are keeping those bets as well. Um, and so anyways, for those who aren't as familiar with him, he is the distant relative of Jesus via Jesus' mother Mary and, Jesus, and John's mother Elizabeth, who were both pregnant at the same time. And when pregnant, Mary walked into the home of Elizabeth, her relative, and John in Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy because he was filled with the Holy Spirit um, early on. I mean, right, right, as through conception, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was sent by God to be essentially a forerunner, a, uh, to prepare the way for Jesus, basically just to let people know Jesus is here and I don't want you to miss him, all right? God does not want you to miss him. That's, that's essentially the ministry of John the Baptist. And this is remarkable because um, John actually says in John one thirty one that he did not know Jesus. All right, so I think it's assumed that because he's a relative of Jesus and because he's been sent to be a prophet for Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus, that they like grew up buddy buddy. Uh, but John actually, throughout his life, did not know Jesus, did not interact with Jesus, uh, but yet was sent by him. And, and it's kind of again remarkable because again John's. Mother Elizabeth knew Mary, was a relative of Mary, knew who she was pregnant with, Jesus. Um, We don't know why or maybe why Elizabeth didn't share with John or maybe she wasn't allowed to share with John what's going on with Jesus. But we actually don't really see John interact with Jesus or even recognize Jesus until John is out baptizing in the wilderness. Jesus comes down the road and then John's eyes light up. Behold, This is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so with awe and trembling hands, he baptized his Lord and then saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. That day also marked the beginning of the end of John's ministry. Um, From that point on, he would joyfully direct people away from himself to follow Jesus. And they were doing it. John eventually rebukes King Herod for sleeping with his brothers, uh, Philip's wife, Herodias. And it finds John put in prison because of that rebuke. He probably expected this because he is well aware of what happens to prophets uh, when they rebuke kings. Okay, And so it usually does not go very well for them. So now he is in Herod Antipas' filthy prison. 
and he's probably expecting his own execution. All right? That's usually what follows when you rebuke a king. He knows Herodias wants him dead for the rebuke of her and King Herod. And maybe what John didn't expect was in this moment to be tormented by oppressive doubts and fears. Again, since the Jordan, the river, John had not doubted that Jesus was the Christ. But stuck alone in this hellish cell, he was faced with some doubts. There had actually been many false prophets in Israel. What if he was one of them? There had also been false um, messiahs throughout time. What if Jesus had been another one of those? After all, Jesus' ministry didn't exactly look like what John the Baptist was actually expecting when he was coming. John says this in Luke 3, 16 through 17. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was maybe expecting Jesus to show up in a more judgmental way, to be able to come in and just start clearing house and just start taking out everyone who was sinful. Maybe that's kind of more of what he was expecting versus this compassionate, tender-hearted Jesus that we've seen over the last few weeks. Maybe John was confused a bit. And if John was wrong about Jesus, could this imprisonment be God's judgment on him? Maybe he's having these thoughts, these questions. Again, his one task was to prepare the way for the Lord. And if he had gotten that wrong, his ministry, his life, all of it would have been in vain. But even in his doubt, there remained a deep, unshakable trust in Jesus. Jesus would tell him the truth. He believes that. He believes Jesus will tell him the truth. And so he needs to hear it one more time. Doubt doesn't necessarily mean distrust, but it may mean that one is seeking for clarity and just assurance of faith. So let's pick it up in Luke 7, 18 through 35, where John finds himself in prison. It says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And what, he's, what they're reporting to John is everything we've been looking at over the last few weeks. All the miracles that Jesus is doing, the compassion that he's showing, the people that he's healing. They're reporting these things to John. And so calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Again, there's the questions. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? John, as a prophet, knowing what he knows about Jesus, knows Jesus will tell the truth. John, as a man, needs to hear it again from Jesus. Again, just because he's filled with the Spirit from birth, just because he's a relative of Jesus, just because he's a prophet, does not mean that he is above the natural and finite realities of a fallen and sinful humanity. I mean, John is, after all, human. I don't care, we'll get to it, that he is considered born of woman, the greatest who have ever lived. He is still human. He's capable of doubt and thus in need of assurance and clarity at times. Same could be said of Peter. Same could be said of the father with the demon-possessed boy. Same could be said of Thomas, who's literally nicknamed Thomas the Doubter. Same could be said of Elijah, who never died but doubted God. Doubting is a normal rhythm of humanity. Maybe a more constructive way to talk about it would be 
skepticism or discernment. Literally just seeking out truth. I, I want to know the truth. And so in his spirit-filledness, if that's a word, John wants to make sure that he gets the Messiah right. He wants to make, that's what he was sent for, to prepare the way for the Messiah. I want to make sure that I got it right. And so Jesus, are you the one? And not only for John, I don't think he's the only one in this scenario here. Some theologians disagree. I, I, I scoured lots of commentaries this week to try to figure out, is John actually doubting in this moment? Or is this just a strategic play for John to continue to decrease and Jesus to continue to increase? He's got to get his followers to stop following him and get them to follow Jesus. Maybe there's some strategy here. But needless to say, it's safe to say that there could be some doubting with John. It's also safe to say that there could be some doubting of his followers. Hey, we're following you. You're supposed to be preparing the way for the Messiah. And you're in prison. It's not going well for you. Like, is he legit? Is he real? Is he the one? And so I think, again, there, there, it's safe to say that there is doubting present. And it's safe to say that they want assurance from the Messiah. They want to know if he's the one. And so practically speaking would mean he wants his disciples to stop following him, start following Jesus as their teacher and savior. Again, maybe they're on the fence. What do we do if John gets executed? What do we do if, our, if we find our lives without a prophet, without a teacher? Well, John knows I must decrease, he must increase. I've got to get them to Jesus. So I'm going to send them to him for the truth. And so he sends them to, G to the Jesus conference going on over in Nain and Capernaum right now, what we've seen over the last few weeks. And so his disciples head out and they come to the conference and let's see what Jesus is doing when they arrive. Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he, Jesus, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. We just sang it. We just sang it. What he's declaring here. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. All right, remember John's question. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? That's the question. Knowing John and knowing that John is a prophet, which means he has access to Old Testament knowledge, Jesus both answers John's question and gives John assurance that he is in fact the one, that he is in fact the Messiah, the chosen one who is sent by God. John is looking for and is given his, his entire life over to. He does it, Jesus does this by himself fulfilling what Isaiah and other prophets prophesied regarding the coming Messiah would do in, uh, among the people. Jesus both fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah and quotes Isaiah in his instruction to John's disciples. It's not necessarily certain exactly which passage of Isaiah Jesus is 
uh, quoting from, for Isaiah literally mentions these topics, these ministries of the Messiah over multiple chapters, 29, 32, 35, 42, 43, 61. Again, Isaiah is prophesying this is what the activity of the Messiah is going to be. And we read that. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. One interesting thing to note about Jesus using the prophecies of Isaiah is that he leaves off a benediction in one of them. And it's namely Isaiah 61, verse 1, where it says this, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, again, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. But here's what he leaves off in his answer to John. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Which is interesting and a little bit ironic where John finds himself, right? In Jesus' message to John's disciples, he included all of the Messiah's ministry work except for the part about opening the prison to those who are bound. Might that be the most beneficial thing to note for someone who is in fact in prison? On behalf of the Messiah. On behalf of preaching Jesus. The one John has preached about. What Jesus has assured for John is twofold here. What he's telling John is Jesus is the Messiah. For the works he is accomplishing proves him to be the one. The Son of God. And two, by leaving out the benediction of the liberty for the captives, John is continuing to prepare the way for the Messiah. In that, his life is still the forerunner of Jesus, who too will be imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and offered up as a sacrifice. He's the last illustration of all that Jesus has come to fulfill. John's life is an illustration. He preached to the people, don't miss Jesus. And now his life will even be an illustration of that. He will be offered up and slaughtered. His death was a foreshadowing of his Messiah's death. John dies by the hand of King Herod's wrath. Jesus will die by the hand of his father's wrath. And this is an assurance for John. And it's maybe a moment for him to again push his disciples away from him and to get them to Jesus so that the full picture can finally be realized. It's as if I can hear Jesus telling John, you're right, John, I am the Messiah. You've not preached in vain. You've not lived in vain. And now you are also going to die not in vain. It's still preparing the way for me. Finish the race, John. You're almost there. Let me show you where I get this. Let's look at the text from here and pick it up. John's life wasn't in vain. It wasn't meaningless. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. It's almost like he sends off his his disciples back to John to provide him the assurance. And then knowing what's going to happen to John, it's as if Jesus turns to the crowd and begins the eulogy. This is who John was. This is what he stood for. This This is what he was sent to be. 
Concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A reed was considered to be a, a weak and flimsy uh, plant that would bend and break at every gust of wind. Jesus is here stating that John was not like a reed shaken by the whirlwind of worldly doctrine. He, he, he doesn't just change his mind and believe whatever his itching ears want to hear. He stands firm unlike a reed. He's grounded and solid in the spirit that has been sent to him. And the life that he is living and the message that he is proclaiming. Jesus is saying here, he's not wavered from that. Don't take this question, are you the one, as if he's wavered. He goes on to say in verse 20, uh, 25, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He's saying John, John was not known for nice things. Though he garnered a great following, he would not have sold out to the celebrity pastor culture. He's not traveling down the Jordan River on a yacht baptizing people. His wilderness home isn't a mountain lodge. This man wore rough camel's hair for clothing and did not eat bread and drink wine like everyone else did. He ate locusts and honey and he drank no wine. Whatever you picture as royal, John was the complete opposite. And so Jesus is asking them this rhetorical question, did you go out and expect to see some royalty? No, that is not what we sent to prepare the way for me. What then did you go out and see in verse 26? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus calls John a prophet. Of the prophets of the Old Testament, John is the last one before Jesus comes. But Jesus says John is more than a prophet. What does he mean by that? And why is it important? Follow me here because it's important for all of us today. It's important for all of us today. It has implications for you and me, this statement here. He goes on to explain himself. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Okay, that's speaking of the, 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 the job description of John. And then he goes on in verse 28. Again, this is the one that I quote often. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, contrast here, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, that's something I've never shared with you guys. I always say those born of women, John's the greatest. All right, he's the goat when it's referred to that. But I actually never have told you that you're even greater than John. Here's why. Jesus actually creates two categories here. And this is why this has incredible implications for us. He creates two categories. Those born of women and those who are in the kingdom of God. All right? Now, not to, uh, you know, kind of trace a rabbit hole here of um, our current social experiment of trying to redefine the term woman in such a way to say that you can be born of man. Um, because it's just not true. Anyone with rational thought can agree that the natural way to be born is from a biological woman. All right? In other words, we all come from a biological mother. No debate. Back to the two categories. That's all I'm going to say about that. The Bible talks about two categories. Law or old covenant. And grace or new covenant. 
Law and Old Covenant, grace and New Covenant. Jesus' death and resurrection is the end or fulfillment of the law. And then it ushers in the New Covenant of grace. This new way of living. This kingdom of God, alright? So those born of woman enter into the original one. The Old Testament. You're under law. Why? Because you're born not yet receiving the new covenant. Not yet under the, the, the banner of Christ, the banner of the gospel. Because you got to hear it, you got to believe it, you got to receive it, you got to follow it and trust it. All right? Until you do that, you're under law, which is a good thing for you because it actually reveals some things for you. Romans 7, verse 7, for example, says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So up until Jesus, everyone was under the law and no other opportunity was available. So John is representing the last person who is both prophet, who is both um, under the law, and has not yet received the benefits of living under the new covenant. Therefore, what Jesus is referring to when he says that John is born of woman, the greatest to have ever been, is that he is both a prophet, but even more than the prophets, he's the only prophet who has been able to see, touch, experience, and be in relationship with the Messiah that they were all prophesying about. He got to experience the greatest uh, job description of a prophet up until this point. So of Old Testament... He's considered greatest in that line. Yet, those who receive Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those who are first or in the kingdom of God, are greater than John because what John only got to experience under law is death. That's it. His faith was in what was to come, but he did not get to experience that. So he's saved by what's coming and just the hope of that. What we get to experience under the banner of grace and under the banner of the new covenant is that Jesus has completed the work. It's finished. It's done. He says that at the cross. The wrath of God toward sin, satisfied. Those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, we get to then be transferred from death to life now. Now, we get to live with hope now that when we die, we already know what's going to happen. We know where we're going to go. We know who we're abiding in right now. We know who we are in. And it is secure. We don't have to then ask the question, are you the one? Because there's the Holy Spirit who seals us and secures us and provides us the assurance when we doubt. We get that. So even the least in the new covenant in this kingdom is greater than this side, John the Baptist. As Spurgeon once said, somewhere, there it is, the darkest day is still lighter than the brightest night. That's what all they could experience over here. The brightest night is John the Baptist and what he's proclaiming. 
But over here, even again, the darkest day is still lighter and greater than the brightest night. Those who are in Christ get to experience the freedom from sin and death. The benefits of being born again. Those born of women, under law. Every single one of us, bound to sin. But those born again into a new kingdom get to experience the freedom of life now instead of just death. As 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Life. And that's what we get to receive. And so that's what Jesus is explaining to these people of what John ushered in and then what the Messiah is ushering in. And as he's explaining that to these people, this is the response. Look at verse 29. Let's keep reading. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. These two verses offer really the explanation for the rest of this passage. Remember John's question to Jesus. Are you the one? Here's the true reality. Everyone who has ever lived is going to be faced with that question. Asking Jesus, are you the one? There will be some who have ears to hear and will believe. They will believe. And then there will be some who hear it, but if they don't believe it, they therefore reject it. They reject it. So we all ask the question. Every person on this planet will come to the, a, a point in time of asking the question, is Jesus legit? If we have ears to hear, we will believe and trust and consider God just. If we don't, we will reject it. We will reject it. Those who were baptized by John which was, again, a baptism of repentance. It was a recognizing that they were sinful and understanding that they need to be cleansed. John was ushering in a practice of telling the people they need to change, they need to repent and be ready to receive Jesus when he arrives. Repentance is just a righteous grieving of your sin and then looking to someone else to solve it, to fix it, to forgive it. That's what's going on in this story. That's what John was preaching and reiterating through his baptisms. Prepare yourselves for when Jesus gets here. Recognize that you need a Savior. You need Him. And when the people and tax collectors heard this, they concluded that God's way is the right way. That's what they're saying. God's way is the right way. He prepared us through John the Baptist he allowed us to see the illustration of what we need to do with our sin because the law has made us aware of it. And now we're waiting for the Messiah, Jesus, to come and forgive us of it. God's way is good. It's just. We, we believe that. We trust that. And so that's what they declare in the moment. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the way of God because they did not participate in the baptism of John. They did not prepare themselves they didn't think they needed cleansing. Though they are the experts in the law, they do not believe the law applies to them. It's not talking about them as sinful. Rather, they believe it's talking about everyone else and their need to be cleansed. 
So Jesus goes on to provide this unique illustration in verses 31 through 35 of this reality in verse 30. He says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And that's usually just kind of a, an all-catching term of the people that he's dealing with in the moment. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute, the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say look at him a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus uses this illustration of children playing games in the marketplace trying to invite other children into their game. Essentially what he's saying here is the kids are playing a game where they're creating a wedding and inviting others to participate in the wedding and they're also creating a funeral and inviting others to participate in the funeral. It's just a game that the kids are playing in this marketplace. These two examples are in reference to Jesus and John. The child who sang the dirge, a lament or a funeral song, is like John who came eating no bread and drinking no wine. There was nothing to celebrate in the moment. He was not the life of the party. Okay, He was the friend who basically points out all of your wrongdoing and maybe without a bit of social awareness, he's the odd duck in comparison to everyone else. He's preaching condemnation and he's preaching death because of sin. He's saying you need to repent. He, he, the natural response to people when they go out to the wilderness to hear John preach is going to be weeping and mourning. Because he's declaring to them the law is revealing everything about you that's wrong. That's wrong. And in the moment, they're thinking... We need to be cleansed then. And so he begins providing the illustration of let me baptize you to show you what Jesus is going to come and do. I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Spirit. This will ultimately be what actually cleanses you and allows you to do what Jesus is now talking about. He invited them to dance. John came preaching death. Jesus comes preaching life. And he's inviting them. I can provide you forgiveness. The child playing the flute is like Jesus who comes eating and drinking. He's the life of the party. Never in a sinful way. But he was social. He was compassionate. He was warm and inviting. Everyone wanted to be around him and experience him. He was enjoyable. He's opening up the dance floor at the wedding because death is no more. Life has arrived. That's what he's declaring to the people when he arrives on the scene. No longer is it just repent and prepare yourself. It's repent and be baptized. It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The new covenant. It's here. Regardless though, the Pharisees and the lawyers did not weep when John preached of their sin and they called them to repentance. And they did not dance when Jesus invited them to have forgiveness, life, and life abundantly. Instead, they accused John of having a demon. And Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. You see, they did not have ears and eyes to see and understand what was in front of them. 
They could not see the greatest prophet testifying to the law that they devoted their entire lives to. And they also could not see the Son of God sent to fulfill this law and then usher in for them forgiveness by the blood of the Lamb where they can have no more condemnation. They could not see it. And therefore they rejected it. And so when answering the question, are you the one, they are saying, no, we don't believe he is. You can't make me weep over my sin. And you won't make me dance either. Verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What a weird little benediction here to this passage, Jesus. <laughs> but it's personifying wisdom here as a mother who is represented by her children. Who's proven by her children. It also begins with yet, which is a contrast of the previous example. He's now offering a contrast to what the Pharisees' response was. Jesus is now contrasting the generation that rejects him with the children who accept his and John's message. It's showing that wisdom is vindicated or it's justified. It's saying that God's way, wisdom, is shown to be the right way by looking at those who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's saying in the marketplace. There are children who reject it. There are children who don't weep. And there are children who don't dance. But here Jesus is saying. Look at the ones who do. Look at the ones who do. That's proof. That Jesus is the one. Because we see life change. In other words, Jesus is saying, you, can't, you can accuse John of being crazy, and you can accuse me of being a glutton and a drunkard, but look at the results here. The blind are recovering sight. The lame are walking. The poor are being ministered to. And though John did not get freed from the physical prison himself, the captives who are bound by the shackles of sin will be freed from their chains, and they will dance in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying here. God's way is shown to be the right way by looking at those who say yes to the question, are you the one? Look at the fruit, the change in their life. They are no longer dead, but alive in Jesus Christ. And their lives represent it. The children of the wisdom vindicate the truth of the message of John and the fulfilling Messiah of Jesus Christ that comes onto the scene. The world is forever changed after the cross of Jesus Christ. Forever changed. It's why for 2,000 years, no matter how many people are trying to snuff it out, it can't be snuffed out. You cannot stop the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is taking dead people and making them alive. We can't stop it. But as children, we get to participate in it. We get to participate in it. This whole message is about having assurance in the work of Jesus. And believing the message Saying yes to the question, are you the one? And having assurance that it's 
the correct answer by the lives of wisdom's children. Wisdom's children. Let's pray together and then we'll jump into communion here. Father, you are so wise. So wise beyond our understanding, our finite minds. God, I'm so thankful that you have given us so much truth and knowledge that points to your son, Jesus. We have thousands of years of Old Testament scriptures and stories and events and characters that all point to this coming Messiah, this one. God, there's a question that we come to and it's asked of every single one of us, do we believe that that one was your son, Jesus Christ? And the evidence is overwhelming that it is, that it's true. That he did come and he did live a perfect life that we could not live. That he died a death that we deserve. That he rose from the grave. And as we'll celebrate when we get to Easter, that he appeared to eyewitnesses. To almost 500 people who saw a risen Savior who they also witnessed died. And not only that, but the same Holy Spirit that came and descended upon Jesus. For I believe in the moment for John to see the assurance of this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. That same Holy Spirit descends on each one of us when we say, yes, you are the one and it assures us, it seals us, it stamps us as wisdom's children. We move from death to life. We move from weeping to dancing. Because we can finally say that our sins have been forgiven. And that the poorness of our souls has been ministered to. And that the shackles that we are bound in are broken and we are free. We are free. God, you are so good and gracious and merciful to us. And it was not anything that we had to do, nothing that we had to earn. You sent Jesus as a free gift for us to receive and to trust him. Thank you. Thank you. The only appropriate response we have is gratitude because it was not of us, it was only of you. And we worship you because of it. We worship you. It's in your beautiful son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at